Welcome back to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. Our big idea this week is an architectural space, but it's also a big idea. The synagogue is the house of prayer for Jewish people the world over. Synagogues come in many shapes and sizes, but they all share a number of functions. The synagogue is a house of worship, a repository for sacred objects, a site of teaching, and the focus for a community. The people of Israel in early times were nomadic, and they literally carried their religion around with them in the form of the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the commandments of Moses. With the establishment of the Kingdom of Israel, the great temple at Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, was built as the house of God. Now there are synagogues in every country in the world where Judaism is practiced and passed on from one generation of Jews to another. Today we'll ask some of these questions. How much do we know about the history of the synagogue as a kind of building and as an institution? And how much can it tell us about the history of the people who use it? Are all synagogues the same? And what do we find inside them? In what ways does the space of the building reflect and symbolize the beliefs and practices of the people who use it? What's a typical week in the life of a synagogue? And what does the place mean to the people who gather there? My guides to the synagogue are Erica Lyons, who's a Hong Kong-based writer and journalist and the founder and editor-in-chief of Asian Jewish Life, and Asha Oza, rabbi of the Ohelea Synagogue in the mid-levels of Hong Kong. Welcome to both of you. Erica, let me start with a, a big question to you, which I hope you'll be able to answer quite briefly. Briefly, who are the Jews? Um, yeah, that actually is a rather big question, but I guess the... Uh uh, I guess probably the simplest answer I can give, it's the children of Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a group of people that share a common ancestor, and that's the patriarch Abraham, and the patriarchs also um, Isaac and Jacob. So I guess that's probably the short answer. Um, so in a sense, a family. On the subject of spirituality, <laughs> Rabbi, you're the person to tell us, what do Jews believe? Traditionally, Jews have um, believed in God, one unique God, uh, a revelation um, the Torah, which God gave to the people at Sinai, a written component and, a, uh, and an oral component, which was eventually written down. They believed in reward and punishment, uh, the coming of the Messiah, and, uh, and the revival of the dead, the resurrection of the dead. Uh, over time, not all of these beliefs were palatable to all Jews. So mm -hmm. um, there have been various reforms that uh, that took away some of these beliefs, um, but traditionally these have been the beliefs. And Orthodox Jews continue to uh, to believe those beliefs that I mentioned earlier. Monotheistic, the belief in a future Messiah and an afterlife, which would be a reward for conduct in the in the present life. Yes, these are the headlines, as it were. Okay, and you mentioned that. To, I pronounce it Torah. 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 Sorry. And we'll talk a lot about that later because I take it that's literally and, and symbolically in the middle of the synagogue, the Torah. Uh, at the front. front yeah. At the front. Okay. <laughs> All right. You can educate me in this as, as we go along. 
Erica, I mentioned in my introduction the temple in Jerusalem, the temple built by King Solomon. Right. Um, <clears throat> is there, can you say something about that and tell us, is there a relation between that great temple and the synagogues that we now find all over the world. Yeah. Um, what I think the best way to look at that is to look at the um, earliest references to synagogues, and um, that's approximately about the time of the Babylonian exile, which is after the destruction of the first temple. So all of a sudden you have a diaspora where you have Jews are sort of spread around outside of uh, Jerusalem. And I, I think you need to tell us about the Babylonian exile. Explain. Right, right. So after the destruction of the first temple, right. um, Jews sort of left the land of Israel mm-hmm. and lived elsewhere for kind of really the first time. And um, it's about that time period where we think that the synagogues first developed. Okay. Um, so as houses of worship. And then the Jews return to Jerusalem. Um, Yes, they returned. And Rebuild then, the temple. Then, right, and then there was the destruction of the second temple in um, 70 uh, CE. And um, actually at that time, after that period, uh, synagogues became had an even greater importance in the Judaism religion, and also as did rabbis. So, <laughs> Okay, so the great temple was destroyed by the Romans Correct. after a, a Jewish rebellion, mm-hmm. 70 years in the common era, Correct. 70 years after the birth of Jesus, more or less. Um, what I'm wanting to get at next mm-hmm. is, uh, and then we have this a diaspora right. and a, um, a spreading of synagogues all mm-hmm. over the world. Is there a sort of physical, is it the idea that these synagogues are in some sense a reproduction or a replacement of the original Great Temple? Um, certainly not a reproduction of. I mean, there are certain elements that you have in a synagogue even today mm-hmm. um, that are symbolic of... of um, Sort of ritual item, ritual objects that would have been in the holy temple, but definitely okay. not a replacement. Okay. Um, what about synagogues in this part of the world? Um, well, there are many. I mean, the, the fact that I like to quote is that in the greater China area, Hong Kong synagogue is the oldest um, synagogue still in um, use for worship. Um, but there are much older synagogues in India and throughout India mm-hmm. and uh, Cochin and in Mumbai as well. Um, there's a synagogue in um, Singapore, but there's also in uh, Myanmar. Um, so really throughout the region. I mean, what about in China? Uh, in China, uh, there are two synagogues. Uh, well, there are two synagogues in Shanghai today, mm-hmm. um, and those are. But neither one is actually in use as a house of worship. Um, one is Ohel Moshe, and um, that's now a museum of the Shanghai Jewish refugees. And the other one is Ohel Rachel. And that's used by uh, the government, uh, the Chinese government, as in, I think, for the education department. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an organizational building for the government. Um, and then there's um, two synagogues remaining in Harbin. Again, neither one is in use as a synagogue today. So. And your synagogue, Rabbi, in Robinson Road, dates from, how old is that? 1901. 1901. Right. Okay. Now... Let's now, in our imagination, move inside the synagogue because I want to get some sense of what we're going to find when we move into the synagogue. Um, I guess we might think for a church, for example, all churches are different, but there's a basic template for the church. We would expect to find in different places an an altar, a, a pulpit, a place for the congregation. Churches tend to be oriented towards Jerusalem, um, they tend to be cruciform. The, the building takes the form of a cross. So that whatever church you go into, you would know it's a church. 
So, that, and uh, for a mosque, I think it would be the same. The, the basic elements of the mosque, the pulpit, the minaret, and so on, you'd expect to find in all examples of, of the mosque. So what about the synagogue? Tell us, first of all, about the, if you can, about the basic template of what we find in a synagogue. Well, if you, uh, if you walk into a synagogue, um, you will see that uh, it should be facing toward Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a geographical anomaly here in, in Asia, uh, the synagogues face west, mm. uh, yes. whereas in the rest of the world they tend to face east. Through a window you're supposed to be able to see the sky so that you can mm-hmm. gaze out the windows, not to daydream, mm-hmm. but to gain some reverence and be inspired by the sky and so on. Um, sometimes okay. it's not always so possible to build uh, a synagogue uh, with windows and be able to see out and so on. But Okay, so we've got our orientation towards Jerusalem. We've got the sense that the synagogue should be, though it's a, an enclosed space, it needs to be open in some way to the outside world to, to facilitate worship. What else are we going to find? One, one should find uh, the, the placement of the Torah. The Torah is the ancient script that we, uh, that we read from, the ancient scrolls that we read from, which contain, in the, in the synagogue, they contain the five books of Moses. They are kept at the front of the synagogue. In the middle of the synagogue, where there was, a, uh, there was a, something called a bima, which is a, a place where they would put the, synagogues, uh, put the scrolls out, open them, and read them. The public reading of the Torah, which happens on three days, usually three days of the week, um, Saturdays, Mondays, and Thursdays. Yeah, I'd actually say I'd also add that the Torahs are kept in um, an ark, or we'd call it Aron Chodesh, so they're in a cabinet, so they're kept covered otherwise. So there's a, there's a storage, storage place where, where they are kept when not in use, and then they're brought out uh, and displayed and read from. And read from, and, and, and taught, you know, and taught from. Um, okay. You know, and, and I think part of the, I would say almost the theology behind this is that what we face is the written word, right? There's something very powerful, uh, you know, behind that idea that we face the written word. When we, at, at certain highlights of the service, we open the ark on the holiest days of the year, we open the ark and we pray to, toward, the, uh, toward the, open, the open ark, which is, which is uh, symbolically very powerful. The rabbi mentioned uh, bima, so usually there's yeah. some sort of grazed platform um, mm-hmm. t- in some shuls, you'll find in synagogues, you'll find it in the center of the room. Others, you'll find it up in front. People wanted to move the bima to the front of the synagogue. As the service went from being participatory, right, people would come to a synagogue and pray, sort of being a little bit like a performance, you see. So if you're doing a performance, there's a stage, and the show takes place on the stage. And the stage is usually at the front, unless it's a boxing match, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> or, or a sports arena, right? But the, the stage is at the, is at the front, and the synagogue was moving in people who, who wanted to reform the synagogue service, moved the synagogue in that, in that direction, and the Orthodox uh, fought some, some bitter battles over the placement of the, uh, of the bima from where the Torah is read. Okay, this is exactly the kind of thing I, <laughs> I, I wanted you to start talking about. It's, it's really fascinating, the relation between the physical space mm-hmm. in the synagogue and, and belief, indeed changing belief and, and practice. Right. That's very good. 
Let's hear some more now. I should stop calling it the book. Okay, the scroll, the Torah. Um, you say the Torah scroll. Actually. The Torah scroll. Mm-hmm. Okay, T- tell us some more about it. What What about the script? Um, well, it's the five books of Moses. So I guess uh, Christians refer to it as the Old Testament. This um, is the, f- the first five books of the Old correct. Testament. Correct. Part, part mm-hmm. Yes, part of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes. Okay, okay sorry. Um, and it's written um, by hand on actual parchment. Um, who, who writes it? Uh, a Torah like a scribe. I, I, a Torah scribe. It would be a professional scribe. They uh, so yes. call the sofer, yeah. yeah. Um, and it take, it's a very, very long process. Um, yeah. You know, it has to be done, you know, exact, you know, co- you know well, correctly. Um, I've heard a year to two years. Mm-hmm. A year, I think, if you're very proficient. Otherwise, is up to two years um, to write the scroll out. So. Okay. And in what language? Hebrew. It's in Hebrew. Okay. So in biblical Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew. Ancient Hebrew. Right. Uh, so this, how, how does this correspond to, to modern Hebrew? Modern Hebrew is based on biblical Hebrew, yeah. uh, but there are some there are some differences. Modern Hebrew uh, is a re- is the revival of a language that lay only as a scholarly language, as a as a language of writing and reading. It was never a sp- you know it hadn't been a spoken language for almost two thousand years. Um, and then Hebrew was suddenly revived, which is which is a, another story and, okay. a, and a great story, but it's a yeah. different story. Right. So modern Hebrew has has to do with the the, the state of Israel. Has, it has well, it has to do with it has to do with uh, with the yearning of the the Jewish people to return okay. to their historic homeland, and part of that part of that process of, of nationalization, that, na- that nationalistic impulse, was to revive. A Jewish language as a spoken language, okay. and the language of the Bible in the land of the Bible, so to speak. Okay, all right. But the language in, in which this scroll is written, this is really a, a, a literary language. It, it's not a language in use. Um, who understands it? <laughs> Hopefully, the rabbi. <laughs> what about um, you? Do, do you? Um, a minimal amount. Uh-huh. I'm studying you now, also. But uh, I think um, I think that um, people have a familiarity with it. Um, everything's also available in translation as well. And when you follow along in the service, and everybody that's present would follow along, um, it's written in uh, Hebrew that's more accessible. So you'd right. be able to read and follow along in, in a book format. Right. So it's being, you know, it's being read in the center on the bima during the service, but you'd be sitting in the congregation with a book. So I, I, I would say that... Um, in, it depends on the congregation how many people understand uh, what is being read. Uh, if one is a modern Hebrew speaker, then there is there is a much higher level of comprehension. It's not total, right. and when one considers that fifty percent of the Jewish people today are living in Israel, it's about fifty percent, which means fifty percent of people who could would attend a synagogue would understand that that language. Um, but many people come on a weekly basis mm-hmm. and don't uh, you know and don't necessarily understand the language. Just going back to some other parallels between the synagogue and the temple, of course uh, in a in a tr- in a traditional synagogue there is separation between the sexes, which harks back to the te- times of the temple when uh, when the rabbis uh, put in 
a separation. We are told in, in traditional texts they put in a separation to prevent uh, unwanted frivolity uh, at uh, at various services, and um, we also don't want unwanted frivolity, no, so we have that separation. <laughs> Reading from the the Torah scroll is really very important for religious services in the synagogue. Who does the reading? In our, yes. in our synagogue, it is you know men. You know, we you know we conform with the general Orthodox practice, so men tend to read. It's not so easy to read from the uh, from the Torah. It requires a great deal of preparation. Mm. Um, it's not it's not you know not anybody who can read Hebrew can get up necessarily and, and sure. do it automatically because it has its own cantillation tunes which you have to know off by heart because they're not in the they're not in the to- written Torah right. scroll. Right, so I, I took can to mean um, who has sort of uh, permission rather than that, a, That's ability. what I meant, but, but so. I understand there's more to it than that. <laughs> so it's, it's not just, as it were, reading out. This is a kind of singing. Chanting. Chanting. Yeah. chanting. It's, a, yeah. it's chanting. Mm. Give you a, a, a demonstration. <laughs> <laughs> right, give us a burst if you can. So the cantillation, for example, for this week that we're recording, mm-hmm. uh, it would begin, Shlach Lecha Hanashim. Vyaturu et Eretzkenan, so on and so forth. So you, you know, how do you know? Sorry, this is going to sound really ignorant, but how do you know the appropriate tune for that passage? Because you have a, we have a book that has the notes that goes back, okay. um, that goes back to at least the year one thousand CE, if probably, well, probably a few, actually, eight hundred CE, mm-hmm. uh, when the when the notes were put in uh, with uh, you know were put in and, and you have to practice that beforehand and, and learn it and so on okay got it I, I think I'm getting that so this reading mm-hmm. some of it would be narrative some of it would be stories some of it would be things like proverbs um, instructions for ritual the, is that right the reading is we finish the five books the first five books Genesis uh, Gen- Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We finish them on a yearly cycle. So you go through the the entire from beginning thing from beginning to the end, which means <coughs> all the interesting stories in Genesis we get in, and all the details of the all tabernacle, the, the genealogies, all the geneal- we read every and last. And bit. it's based on the calendar. So if you were to go from our synagogue to another synagogue anywhere in the world, they would know, be reading the same. You know where you were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, good. You mentioned that um, men and women sit in in. In most synagogues, not all, men and women sit in in different parts of the space. Is that right? Uh, it, well, either yeah, with some sort of divider. Uh, in our synagogue, actually, women are upstairs, men are downstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, that's I, that depends on which synagogue. Whether there's a divider sure. and they're on the same floor. Okay. All right. So. And children in with everyone else. Depending or on, not in. <laughs> or depending on the tolerance of the congregation, right? Yeah. So. Uh, some some synagogues have a more informal feel. Some have a more formal feel. Uh, if it has an informal feel, then you can have children running around, uh, which is the which is a little bit the case in in Ohalea. Is there a minimum number of people that are required for the for the ritual to take place? Depending on what it is. I mean, there are some prayers in Judaism which are very which are individual and private and done in the home, and then there are mm-hmm. others in synagogue which um, have a requirement of uh, ten well, men. Ten, ten men. In, okay. Orthodox in the Judaism. in the Orthodox, in the Orthodox, it's ten men. Again, in more liberal, it's ten people, ten, ten adults, ten, ten Jewish adults. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, you've I've already heard you using the word shul, 
as as a as a synonym for for synagogue. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So that directs me naturally enough to start to ask you about the, the synagogue as a place of instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, synagogue as a place of instruction. I mean, it's it's a mixed use space, right? I mean, primarily it's a house of worship, and mm-hmm. that's its first function. Yeah. But it's definitely also a place where um, education takes place. Um, in some bigger synagogues, there's also it's also used as a social space, and there's other gatherings. Um, but at the very basic form, it's for worship, and then I would say secondary is uh, for study as well. Mm-hmm. So, part of the impulse to publicly read the Torah three times a week was to teach the people, and in fact, in the early times, each verse was translated into the vernacular. So they would read a verse in the Hebrew, and mm-hmm. then read a ver- somebody would would be appointed. He was known as the Maturgaman, the translator. His role was to translate the verse that was read into the vernacular. So there was certainly a a teaching element, but there was also, I would say, a communal element. In, in, in In the medieval period, and even in ancient times, we have uh, we have it recorded that one was allowed to come to the synagogue and interrupt the prayer to raise a grievance they had against somebody really? else in the congregation. So if you had a problem with somebody, if they, they owed you something or they did something to upset you, you had the right to come, stop the service and say, so-and-so has – this is my grievance against so-and-so. And eventually this, for you know, for obviously, obvious <laughs> reasons, uh, this, uh, this practice – was uh, was phased out in the 20th century in New York. There was uh, there was a rabbi called Mordechai Kaplan who began his own Jewish movement called the Reconstruction Reconstructionist Judaism, and he pushed this idea of the synagogue center. So he, he thought that every shul should have a pool, right? A pool. <laughs> So you know, so that you can, it would not just be a place to come and pray, but it also it would also be a community center. Yeah. Um, which, in some ways, is a return to the ancient, uh, the ancient model of the synagogue, which was a place where people gathered. We ha- we know that there were uh, that the synagogues had guests, and people sometimes slept in them or in or in annexes that were next to the uh, next to the synagogue. So, in talking now about the synagogue as a, a community place, mm-hmm. a community focus, that's obviously an important part of the life of a synagogue. So, would most people, most Jewish people, have one synagogue that they go to regularly? Is that how it works? Uh, uh, oh, I'd, I'd say um, for, for the most part. I mean, the the one thing about a synagogue is that. I mean, technically, you don't need to be a member to come and worship. You know, anyone can come in and worship and pray in the synagogue, whether mm-hmm. you're a member or not. But I think that most people really have one where they feel comfortable, and mm-hmm. that really is the center, really, of I think, of their family life. Um, here, that's certainly the case. So people will, on any given week, go to another synagogue, um, I think, to celebrate other people's life cycle events um, or something, even just for an interesting speaker. But uh, for the yes. most part, you do have one. You would tech, you know, usually have just have one. Okay, well, I'm getting quite a strong sense that if you do go to another synagogue, yeah. you're, you're at home because you know what, what's going to be there, you know the form of the services. and Right, and, for, for the most part, so there are constants, yes, mm. synagogues. Okay. Um, I want to ask about rabbis now. Mm-hmm. Okay, rabbi. <laughs> Does every synagogue have a rabbi? Do they all have one? Uh, if they are unlucky. 
<laughs> no, if, if you have large synagogues, uh, you know, kind of in the U.S., you have some of these you know, really massive synagogues, and you would have a rabbi, an assistant rabbi. You'd have rabbis, you know, a sort of a division of what they're in charge of. But in a smaller congregation... It's lay-led. It's all, you yeah, know... You don't, it, you don't need... You can have a synagogue with you can have a synagogue without a rabbi. Uh, the prayers can be led by anyone. Mm-hmm. The Torah can be led by anyone. Life cycle events can be life cycle run events by can be anybody. led by anyone. There's a certain uh, democratized life cycle. You mean things like bar mitzvahs, bar mitzvahs birth, oh, weddings. Birth. You know, it, it can all be run by lay people, right? We have a certain democratization of holiness, as it were, right? Anybody can uh, can play that type of a role. Obviously, the larger the congregation, the more pressing the needs, the more important and the more necessary it becomes to have somebody who is designated to do those various functions, to carry out those functions. Okay. So at the center of your job description as, as a rabbi, you have to, it's your job to conduct the services, to look after what happens inside the synagogue. But you also have a social and community function as well and teaching for sure absolutely teaching worrying about what happens inside the inside the synagogue making sure the services uh, are run in a in an appropriate manner and making trying to make sure there's a quorum there's a minyan for the various services and of course there are there's a role beyond the walls of the synagogue. I mean, I would say a really basic, I think, function of a rabbi is also um, a really important um, commandment in Judaism is visiting the sick. Mm -hmm. I think rabbis sort of, um, I think it's another primary responsibility is some of the communities ill would be going to visit them and seeing what they need. So there's a a pastoral role. Yes. Although although you are designated as the person to do that, there is no... There is everybody's commanded to visit the sick, right? Everybody's everybody's commanded to worry about other people, right? We're all. It's not that the rabbi has got God has commanded the rabbi more than anyone else, Mm -hmm. but the rabbi, the community has, in a sense, appointed somebody to help make sure that those tasks will always be fulfilled, regardless of whatever else is going on. We've just about used up all our time. I, I want to finish by um, asking you, Erica, just to say something about what it means to you to be a member of this this, this synagogue, um, the, the Robinson Road <laughs> or Haleo Synagogue. Well, I've been in Hong Kong for about 12 uh, years now, and um, you know, without a doubt that really is sort of our definition of home is really the synagogue. You know, We're there every week. Um, and I think that when it comes to things, I, we just celebrated a bar mitzvah in my family, uh, my sons, and I had people say to me, well, are, will you do it back in the States? Will you do it? And for us, you know, it wasn't really a question. You know, without a doubt, it would be in Ohalea Synagogue. So really, you know, a central place for my family. So. Erica Lyons, Rabbi Asher Ozeb, thank you both very much. And thank you for listening. <laughs>